I've been told a few times this morning that I've got to keep it short because of Eskim. Uh, now, you know, we believe in miracles in this church, but there are big miracles and there are small miracles. And keeping it short might be a big miracle. <laughs> it has to do not so much with Eskim, but with our recording. Well, indirectly with Eskim as well. I don't know how you were affected last night, but they couldn't get the lights back on. So uh, somebody inquired, and they said, no, we're trying to get the lights started again, but it's not working. So we could be in for some much darkness. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a, a very significant incident that transpired, and it's just impossible to appreciate what was going on without a little background. Now, I know a number of us are pretty familiar with the story of, of Elijah and what actually transpired on Mount Carmel. But there might be some who are not, and even for those of us who are, it's helpful, I think, to try to just refresh our memories as to what had transpired before this particular incident that we're going to consider today. So Elijah arrives out of nowhere, or so it seems. He comes from a town called Tishba, which was obviously a nondescript town on the eastern side of Jordan. The problem that existed was that King Ahab is declared to be the worst king that Israel had ever seen. His father Omri had married him off to a Phoenician princess by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel was very strong, and Ahab was very weak. As a result, the nation tilted more and more towards the worship of Baal, We'll call him Baal because it's much easier to say than Baal. But tilted toward the worship of this Canaanite deity. Now, Baal had a particular portfolio that made him really appealing to the Israelites. He was the god who controlled fire and lightning. There was a fertility cult associated with him. In addition, he sent or withheld rain. And he could, in fact, therefore, control life because he controlled the weather. And in that part of the world, the control of the weather was absolutely crucial. So the situation is that the nation more and more has tilted towards the worship of Baal. Jezebel has been murdering the prophets of God. The situation is desperate, and Elijah stands up and speaks. His name in Hebrew is Eliyahu, and it means my God is Yahweh. So right built into his name is his ministry. That's what he's all about. 
that's what he's going to live out. And probably to cut a long story short, because one can really get lost in the details here, he makes a proclamation, and his proclamation is that as the Lord, as Yahweh lives. Now think of this. The nation given to the worship of Baal, and Elijah says, as Yahweh lives, there will be neither rain nor dew for these next few months, except at my word. Now, that's an impossibility. Rain, of course, there could be drought, and there often was. But dew, in that part of the world, you could not decree that for several years there would be no dew. Topographically, the land is such, situated alongside the Mediterranean, that there will always be dew at night on the upper highlands. So that was the big miracle. Elijah declares, in the name of Yahweh, there will be no dew or rain in these next few years. We now know it was three and a half years that they never had dew. Now, if you want to make yourself public enemy number one, just make a declaration like that. But God protects Elijah in a magnificent way, providing for him. Ahab is searching everywhere and cannot find him. After three and a half years, Ahab meets up uh, with Elijah. And they both counter-accuse one another. But by this time, King Ahab's back is to the wall. And so Elijah is able to dictate the terms. Call the nation together to Mount Carmel, and when you have done so, I want the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, Baal's female consort god, to be present. Well, the Asherah prophets apparently didn't show up. Maybe that was Jezebel's influence. The prophets of Baal did. And in keeping with the speciality of this Canaanite god, Elijah dictates the terms. He says to the people, how long will you waver between two options? If Baal is God, then follow him. If Yahweh is God, then follow him. And the people say, not a word. The terms are that both the prophets of Baal and Elijah himself will take a bull, will slaughter that bull, they will then arrange the pieces, the severed pieces of the animal on the wood, and then they will call upon their God to send fire. Remember, Baal is the God of fire. And the prophets started to call. They had first option. And they got up to all sorts of antics. They cut themselves. They went on morning to night. Elijah was mocking them, not just because he had an adrenaline rush, but he wanted the people to know how powerless 
ball was. And then he put his animal on an altar that he had rebuilt, called on the Lord, and the Lord sent fire and consumed that particular animal. Now, if ever you are in Israel, please try to make sure that on your tour, Carmel is included. It's one of my favorite spots. It's the southeastern summit of the mountain, and it's, it is so obvious. It's called El Morocco today, which means the burned place. And it's so obvious as you stand there and you look out across on the one side the Jezreel Plain and then down towards the Mediterranean to actually see how everything fits together. And so the Lord sent fire. Ahab had actually collected, had them collect water from a spring, probably the only one that had water, just below the spot. And they had doused this offering, and the offering was consumed by fire. So at long last, Elijah has won the victory. Absolutely decisive. The prophets of Baal have been put to death, executed, because of all the problem that they represented in the nation. And then he calls on the Lord to send rain. Now, it's interesting. So he calls on the Lord to send rain. At the beginning, he said, there will be neither dew nor rain except at my word. But the word for rain there is matar, which means a drizzle, basically. There is no trace of rain. When they look out over the sea, they can't even see a cloud in the sky. But then he tells Ahab, you better make your way to Jezreel because there's going to be rain. But the word he uses is geshem, which means a deluge. And a deluge there was. It bucketed down. So now here's decisive evidence. The people have said, Yahweh, he is God. And they've made it quite emphatic. Elijah has every reason to believe the victory, the decisive victory, has been won. The matter is sorted forever. But don't be so fast. In a short while, there is an accusation, not an accusation, a threat from Jezebel. Ahab goes back to his queen, tells her what Elijah has done, and she vows that if she doesn't make his life like one of those of the prophets, may the, de the, the gods deal ever so securely with her. That's where we basically take up the story. All that wasn't the sermon, so just, uh, that's just pure background. So what happens then is Elijah, and we can hardly believe it. In fact, some commentators, I think, play around with this passage because they try to make it mean something else. The Bible says Elijah was afraid. Now, when you see the courage and the heroism of the man, yes, heroism too, standing alone as it were, as he believed, 
against all these prophets, and you see the faith of the man praying for rain, and the rain comes, you can't believe it when you actually hear that he was afraid and he ran for his life. He ran right down to the southern extremity to Beersheba. And there he was, utterly depressed, and he says to God, take my life away, I'm no better than my ancestors. Literally, he's been suicidal. He's utterly depressed and he's afraid. The same man. No wonder James tells us Elijah was a person, a human being just like you and me. And so that's what his prayer is. And God graciously deals with him. He uh, allows him some sleep. He then sends him on a roundabout 40-day trip down to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where the law had been given, and uh, gives him some food. And then he arrives at Mount Horeb. And there's a very interesting happening here. Because as you read your Bible, it says he came to a cave and he slept there. In the Hebrew, the definite article is used. That might not be as big a deal as it sounds, but it's rather interesting. In Hebrew, if you want to make a, a, an ordinary word, uh, add the definite article, you just put a ha on the front of it. And he comes to that cave. Could there be significance in that? And God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And elicits an answer. And Elijah says exactly what is on his heart. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, have broken down your altars, and have killed your prophets. And I alone am left. Now the Hebrew is even more emphatic than that. It says literally, I am left. I, I only. Quite a statement. He believes he's all alone. Standing, he was on Mount Carmel, standing all alone. Now he believes he's forsaken and he's alone and he's had it. And he's rather depressed and he says so. It is at that point that the Lord starts to address him. Now, it's rather important, I think, for us to know that various things had taken place at Sinai many years before, of which Elijah was aware. One of the things that had happened is that God had appeared to Moses in a burning bush. There was fire. The other thing that was rather important is God had given the nation his law. But if you read the account, you realize there was, there was an earthquake, there was fire, there were dramatics. The people were told not to come too close to the mountain. It was a dramatic scene, an earthquake. And then another thing, there are several things that happened there. 
But probably from our point of view, the most significant thing that happened is that Moses, after the people had committed idolatry, Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory. How can I lead these people? Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I can't do that because no one can see me and remain alive. But here's what I will do. I will put you in the cleft of the rock, the cave, cover you with my hand. All my glory will pass by and you will see my back as it were. We know that when Moses descended from the mountain, his face was aglow because he had caught a glimpse of the passing glory of the Lord. And here is Elijah in the same place. And the Lord says to him, he's in this cave, the Lord says, go out and stand at the entrance of that cave. But before he can move, there is a wind that comes through the ravines, makes the rocks shake, and it seems as though the whole place is going to shake and be torn apart, the mountain. But God was not in the wind. And then there is an earthquake, and the place shakes, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then there is fire that glares upon that offering just that had, just as had glared upon that offering on Mount Carmel. But the Lord was not in the fire. And then King James Version says there was a still small voice. Uh, it says literally, it's translated by different words, it says like a gentle whisper in the NIV. Uh, I think in the Tanakh translation from the Jewish Publication Society, it says like a, a quiet murmuring. In fact, so quiet that if it had been any quieter, it would have been inaudible. But there is a sense of the presence of God in that quiet whisper. And then the Lord says to Elijah again, what are you doing here? Now, I love scripture for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons is that it is so factual and catches us by surprise. After all this, I would have expected Elijah to tell a different story, to have come to his senses. But he says the exact same thing. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, destroyed your altars, put to death the prophets, and I am left, I I only. And then God speaks to him. Now the key here is not what Elijah says to God, but what God has to say to Elijah. Because at that point, God in fact 
tells Elijah what he's got to do. Doesn't address him on, Elijah, you've made a mistake, you've got things all wrong. He tells him that he has something that he needs to do. He's got to go up in the direction of Damascus. He's got to anoint Hazael, king of Syria. He's got to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. And he's got to anoint Elisha to be a prophet in his place. And by the way, Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 in the nation. You said, and he didn't say this to him, but it's all implicit. You said, I am alone. There are 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. Now, in, in what was transpiring, God was in fact saying four very, very important things. Uh, they're implicit, they're not explicit, but they're real and they're clear. In the first instance, he is saying to Elijah, be careful not to limit me to any of your stereotypes. Elijah, there is a time for wind and earthquake and fire, and there is a time for a quiet whisper, a hush, the sound of a gentle quietness. I've demonstrated that Baal does not control the natural order. I needed to do that. It was appropriate and it was necessary. I can do that, but I don't have to. I'll decide what and how and when and who. Don't we need to remember that? Because we so easily subject God, limit God to our own stereotypes and very often to our past experiences, though that's all God can do because that's what we've experienced. No, God is a God of infinite resourcefulness. He's always consistent, never erratic, but that doesn't mean he's bound to operate in only one way. Infinite resourcefulness. Second thing God is saying to Elijah is, I have this situation completely under control. For Baal worship to be eradicated from Israel, King Ahab would have to go, and so would Queen Jezebel. But that's not what God called Elijah to do. He had that all under control. And it is important for us to remember, too, that when our most strenuous efforts seem to come to nothing, God still remains in control of the situation. In fact, so often when things seem to be going wrong, he has a better plan. He knows what needs to take place, 
and he sees to it that it does. The third thing that he is saying, and he's saying to us as well, Elijah, I have any number of instruments. There's Jehu, who will become king of Israel. There's Hazael, who will become king of Syria. And there is Elisha, who will be your prophetic successor and will continue your ministry. And they will all come to office through your instrumentality. All of them. There is, by the way, a Syrian soldier whom you do not know and we do not know. Ahab had to go into battle. He had been warned because of his unfaithfulness by another prophet that he was going to die. So what he decided was that he'd play a little trick. He got the king of his southern ally, Judah, Jehoshaphat, to actually wear wear king's regalia. So when the Syrians were joined in battle against the Israelites, they went for Jehoshaphat thinking it was Ahab. So now he dodged the bullet beautifully. Uh, But while Ahab was disguised as a soldier hiding among the soldiers, as they were drawing apart, a Syrian soldier took his bow and shot at random. And that arrow went through the air and came and hit Ahab between the sections of his armor. And Ahab died. See, God can use a man like Elijah, but he can also use a common or garden, a Syrian soldier, to perform his will. And it's, it's actually quite, quite an, amazing, an amazing account. We, I think, always need to remember that we are part of a vast army of believers. The army may be unorganized, hopefully not disorganized, but it is coordinated by God himself. You read on into 2 Kings and you see what happened to Baal worship, to Jezebel. You see how King Jehu was instrumental and these guys were brutal, but they performed what needed to be performed at the time. Then there is a fourth, and for our purposes, a final statement that God is making to Elijah in these circumstances. He is saying, Elijah, I'm not finished with you yet. Remember, Elijah had said, I've had enough. I'm no better than my ancestors. Take my life away. I'm a has-been. And God is saying, I'm not finished with you yet. Elijah, there will never be another Mount Carmel. That was a once-off. Never in your life. But the things you do away from the crowd may be every bit as significant as what took place there on Carmel. 
Your influence on Elisha will be profound. Through him I will complete what I started through you. In terms of the kingdom, it is very important that we evaluate things correctly. The, the decisive actions that impact a church and a nation are very often the background things that nobody sees and they're strategic. Everybody loves Mount Carmel. It is a story of victory. But there's a very significant story in what Elijah did in the quietness as he discipled Elisha, the younger prophet. So friends, the miracle has taken place. I think I'm finishing on time. But let's just pause a moment and see how, how this can impact us as a church and how it might impact you as a person. It gives us some interesting perspectives. First of all, never forget that God is in control, in complete control. Very often when things seem to be spinning out of control, that is just a precursor to something that God is going to do which will make it necessary for us to say, only God could have done this. And then understand also that after a spiritual victory has transpired on Mount Carmel, we are particularly vulnerable. It's very often when you have tasted a victory like that, the adrenaline is rushing, you're excited, and you think you've won the victory, that you are in serious trouble because after that victory, very often, you're a sitting duck for depression. I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze because I can't. Uh, Elijah. But you just wonder about the dynamics that were going on in his head at the time. But most important of all, especially in a congregation where a few of us are, are getting or have got long in the tooth, it may be as you look back you can think of times when God used you. And maybe very subtly, you're thinking, well, now I'm in my twilight years, and maybe, maybe never again anything quite like that. I'll just coast for the, for the next few years. And God may be saying to you, I'm not finished with you yet. See, it's interesting. Besides what happened here, and I'm pushing it here, I know. Besides what happened here at this time, there was a subsequent occasion. If you stand on Mount Carmel and look out across, you see a cone-shaped mountain, Mount Tabor. Now, that may or may not be the traditional site. Well, it's a traditional site of the Mount of Transfiguration. But we know the story of how Jesus took through three, his inner circle, three disciples with him, and was transfigured 
before their eyes. And there were two men who spoke with the Lord concerning his exodus, the exodus he would accomplish in Jerusalem, on which our salvation rests. The one was Moses, and the other was Elijah. I am not finished with you yet. Maybe that's what God is saying to somebody this morning. You've written yourself off, but God hasn't written you off. He still has work for you to do.